Our solar system is a wondrous place with a single star, our sun, and everything that orbits around it, planets, moons, asteroids, and comets. What do we know about this beautiful solar system we call home? It's part of an even larger cosmos with billions of other solar systems. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. With me today is David Grunspoon. He's an astrobiologist, a senior scientist with the Planetary Science Institute, and today we're talking about Earth's twin planet, Venus. David did some early work in his PhD on Venus. What was that like, and what did you do? Well, uh, when I was in uh, grad school in the uh, 1980s, there was this new idea about large impact events affecting planets. You know, we had recently discovered this amazing fact that Earth was hit uh, in an event 65 million years ago that knocked out the dinosaurs and caused an extinction. So people were starting to wonder, what, what else have large impacts done in the solar system? And uh, I had a, a couple of mentors who suggested that I look at some other atmospheres, and I started just being drawn towards the fact that Venus is so similar to Earth and yet so different, and wondering what large impacts did to Venus. And that led me to work on things like uh, what happens when comets hit Venus, and what does that do to the amount of water in such a dry planet, and what was the early climate of Venus like compared to Earth under the influence of being pummeled by a lot of impacts. And it's basically how I learned to do climate modeling was uh, by uh, considering these sort of weird scenarios of early atmospheres and what might have been happening to them under the influence of violent impacts. Even though Venus is about the size of the Earth, it's very different in many ways. What do you think is happening on Venus that makes it so different? Well, that's one of the very compelling questions about Venus because it's so Earth-like in terms of its bulk properties. If you just ask the most basic questions, what's the size of it? What's the mass of it? Where is it located in the solar system? You'd say, wow, it's it's just like Earth in all these ways. And then you start looking at what's the environment like, and you go, whoa, <laughs> that's not at all like Earth because it's, it's so incredibly hot and so incredibly dry. So it's evolved in a different direction. And so when you start talking about Venus today and comparing to Earth, you're led to these questions of not just what's happening there now, but but how has it evolved, you know, and how did those two planets head down such different paths? And obviously for Venus, it's, it's a story of somehow having lost its oceans and lost what we think of as a more pleasant climate a long time ago in the path and trying to understand that, that sort of divergence of conditions away from what we believe was more Earth-like a long time ago. So how does Venus help us uh, understand what Earth's climate is like? Well, it serves as an interesting laboratory for us to test a lot of our ideas about climate and atmospheric processes on a planet that, again, is somewhat Earth-like in some ways and somewhat very, very different in other ways. But, it, you know, with climate and, and the environment, a lot of it is the same physics and chemistry in different situations. So, you know, everybody knows about the greenhouse effect on Earth and how carbon dioxide is part of that. We'll picture a planet just like Earth where the atmosphere is almost all carbon dioxide, basically. And what would that do to climate? You know, it's an interesting sort of thought experiment, but it's, it's also a real experiment because we have this planet next door, Venus, which is basically all carbon dioxide. And many other aspects of Earth are sort of almost exaggerated on Venus, too. You've heard about acid rain. The clouds on Venus are sulfuric acid, so it's sort of the extreme case of acid rain. Uh, so that's also allowed us to study, again, an Earth environmental um, issue in 
almost an exaggerated form. And so th this is uh, just something that kind of makes us smarter about the, uh, the problems and, and the puzzles that we encounter on Earth by seeing them in an altered and sometimes exaggerated form on, on a nearby planet. Venus isn't actually that very far away from us, nor is it very far um, away from the sun in the sense that our two planets have evolved at the, at the moment very differently. But what was Venus like early on in its evolution, do you think? Well, that's a great question. And of course, that's one of the um, mysteries that compels us in our research and, and exploration is to try to get a more clear picture of the earliest history of Venus. We have a lot of circumstantial evidence that leads us to believe it was a much more Earth-like planet a long time ago. For instance, there's the fact that Venus is so incredibly dry today. In fact, if you add up the amount of water on Venus and compare it to what we think is the amount of water on Earth, I say it like that because we don't actually know how much water is hidden inside the Earth, but it's something like 100,000 times as much water on Earth than on Venus which is really strange because we picture them probably having formed with roughly the same amount because they formed nearby out of similar materials. So we think Venus had oceans and we think it had a more sort of pleasant climate, possibly even for life early on. And we've got some other circumstantial evidence about that. So my best guess is that it was much more Earth-like early on. I would say an informed guess, but there's still a lot of mystery there and a lot of uh, experiments we'd like to do and measurements we'd like to make to uh, try to sort of pin down that early history much more clearly. One of the things that's fascinated me about Venus is that it rotates in the opposite direction and it rotates very slowly. How's that affected its evolution, do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting fact that, you know, almost all the planets rotate in the, the same direction as Earth does. So if you're standing on their surfaces, the, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west uh, like we're used to. If, if you were on the surface of Venus... Assuming you could see the sun, which, you know, would be hard because it's so cloudy there, but, but the sun would actually rise in the west and set in the east. And it would do so very, very slowly because the planet rotates incredibly slowly. So, in fact, if you're on Venus, you could walk fast enough to keep the sunset in the same place. You could walk as fast as the sun is moving around the planet. I did that calculation once and I was like, wow, well, that would be kind of neat. You could watch the sunset forever just by walking. But, but you know, how that fits into the evolution is a fascinating question. Um, we don't fully understand the cause of that. We surmise that it's related both to the early impact history of Venus, just as Earth's rotation and and Earth's moon are related to the early impact history of the Earth and setting the Earth spinning in a certain way. You know, the planets formed by these big collisions and the final few were probably very violent. So the geometry of those final few collisions, which way they hit, probably really influenced that spin. But on Venus, there's also the fact that we have this incredibly thick atmosphere, um, 100 times almost as thick as Earth's, and that can cause a sort of drag on the rotation of the planet through um, what we call uh, tides, atmospheric and solar tides, which are um, just these phenomena of um, the, the mass of the atmosphere itself can actually pull on the planet's rotation over a long period of time. So that might have to do with how slowly it's rotating. We're not sure about its total evolution of the uh, of the rotation rate in, over time. But as far as rotating in the 
sort of backwards direction, if you will. We think that probably has to do with uh, large impacts early on in its history when it was still forming. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, um, maybe that means that over time, Venus will end up being tidally locked with the sun. And then we're going to have a completely different environment, perhaps, with, with the extremes in temperature on both sides. Yeah, that's really an intriguing possibility that Venus moving so slowly could be, could be uh, on its way to being tidally locked and that at some point, um, probably in the pretty distant future, I don't think we have to start revising our models too quickly, but, but it could actually become uh, a, a locked planet like we think a lot of these, uh, these exoplanets are where one side is permanently facing the star. You know, as you mentioned, Venus has this uh, huge pressure and enormous clouds that are uh, very opaque. But, you know, we have been able to penetrate through those. One mission was called Magellan. What was the most important set of observations that came from the Magellan spacecraft? Magellan was was an amazing mission. It really revolutionized our understanding of, of this neighboring planet. Uh, before then, we had a couple of pictures of a couple of spots on the surface from these Russian landers, which were amazingly able to operate under those extreme surface conditions briefly in the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and we had a couple of sort of vague uh, images from, from radar of parts of the planet. But with Magellan, uh, we were able to orbit and basically get images of get maps of the entire surface almost the entire surface by using radar which uh, as you say penetrates through those clouds and it does sort of flash photography almost bouncing radar off the surface and then you see that image and you build up what the planet looks like and that that revolutionized our view of venus in so many ways one thing we learned uh, was how volcanically um, interesting Venus is. Its surface is almost completely covered in one way or another with volcanic features, these, these broad plains, flat plains that we, we can think of as uh, flood basalts, uh, like we have some areas on Earth, the, the Pacific Northwest comes to mind of these big flood basalt areas. And then uh, other kinds of volcanoes, these steep shield volcanoes, like Hawaii, uh, Hawaiian-style shield volcanoes. So I think of Venus almost as volcano world. Uh, and and the, it immediately sharpened the question of, is it still volcanically active? Um, and since ever since Magellan, we've been trying to nail that down. And we again, we think we have some clues about that, but we don't have uh, what we sometimes refer to as the smoking gun, telling us it's definitely volcanically active. But now that we know from Magellan there's volcanoes all over the place, that's sort of the next question. Are they still going? Right. I mean, you know, uh, the supplying uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, is that, you know, believed to be because of the volcanoes? Well, over the long term, yes. I mean, that's how um, CO2 gets the main way CO2 gets supplied to planetary atmospheres. But we don't really know if Venus requires an active supply now because there may be nothing removing CO2 from the atmosphere. You know, on Earth, uh, we have this cycle where CO2 is supplied by volcanoes um, and, well, now by factories and cars too, but, but oh, historically by volcanoes. And, and then, um, you know, it's, it's removed from the atmosphere by these what we call weathering reactions uh, that are facilitated by water running over rocks and pooling CO2 out, making carbonate rocks. Venus has no surface water, so it may not really have any way of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But we do see other things in the atmosphere that may require an ongoing volcanic source. We see all these uh, sulfur gases, SO2, sulfuric acid, and it may be that chemical reactions are always removing those 
from uh, with surface minerals reacting with surface minerals. So, so in fact, the sulfur gases we see on Venus today may require an ongoing source of uh, volcanic gases. You know, Venus also uh, has is an easy planet to see. It, it's close to the sun most of the time, and um, uh, it, during its uh, passage. Um, uh, in its orbit around the sun, it can be very bright because it can be close to the Earth. So I know um, many cultures have been thinking about Venus and and uh, placing them in their own histories. Uh, uh, and so it has a fascinating role from that perspective. Do you have any favorite stories about that? Yeah, um, I'm fascinated by the fact that because, as you say, nearly every culture, probably every culture, has stories about Venus uh, because it is so bright and also has such a, a different kind of behavior in the sky than a lot of other planets, it, uh, because it's what we call an inferior planet, meaning that it orbits closer to the sun than, than Earth. It just appears uh, for a few months um, at sunset and then disappears and then reappears for a few months at uh, sunrise and then disappears. You'll never see it in the middle, middle of the night in the uh, midnight sky like you might Jupiter or Mars or Saturn. So it sort of has a sort of almost kind of playful <laughs> behavior where it kind of flirts with us and, and then disappears and then reappears on the other side. And a lot of cultures had stories that reflected that. And one uh, one uh, area that I love of the sort of archaeoastronomy is the Mesoamerican stories about Venus. The uh, Aztecs and the Toltecs and the Mayans were really astute and impassioned Venus observers. Uh, and they were very um, good at predicting the motions of Venus and noticing, and, and it was tied into their culture and their their origin stories, their beliefs. And they have th these uh, really neat stories about um, the uh, the Mayans um, uh, called Venus uh, Quetzalcoatl, um, and our, our Kukulkan in the Aztecs, it was Quetzalcoatl, but it was basically the same character. And uh, Venus was the brother of the sun. And together, Venus and the sun would go into the underworld and do battle with the enemies of mankind. And that kind of makes sense because you see Venus, you know, at sunset sort of trailing the sun and disappearing. And so they're, they're going down to do battle. And uh, they have all these uh, stories about uh, Venus and the sun together uh, uh, beating back uh, pestilence and disease and war and all these enemies of mankind and basically uh, making the world safe for humanity. Well, you know, modern culture in the last hundred years or so, you know, uh, there's been stories like Edgar Rice Burroughs where um, uh, life on Venus could have arisen. And part of that comes from um, uh, the steady knowledge and increased knowledge scientifically of Venus, like what happened in 1761 with the Venus transit. What happened during that transit? Yeah, I love that story. That is basically the... Uh the discovery that Venus had an atmosphere by a very astute observer in St. Petersburg, Russia, an astronomer named uh, Lomonosov. And he noticed, uh, you know, Venus does these transits in front of the sun, as you mentioned, in, in this sort of weird pattern. It does it in pairs of eight years, separated by about a, a century. In fact, so we just had um, a Venus transit in 2004 and another one in 2012, and we won't again for almost another century. Um, and when it does that, you can learn a lot because um, you see the little disk of Venus, of course, the little dot um, passing across the sun. And historically, we've learned a lot. It helped us figure out the size of the solar system through the geometry and all that. But this particular uh, discovery that you mentioned, Lomonosov noticed that it wasn't just a circle 
moving across the sun, that there was this weird effect when Venus was just touching the sun on one side and then the other, that there was this weird, what he called the black drop, um, this weird sort of extension of the circle to this strange sort of stretched out shape, which we now associate with refraction of the atmosphere of Venus that you can see in those moments when it's just touching the sun. And he was the first one to, to deduce that. And he said, Venus must have an atmosphere. And he was right. Yeah, and of course, that feeds into um, all kinds of stories. This is a first planet beyond Earth that had um, uh, an atmosphere. And so what would life be like, etc., etc. So, uh, indeed, Venus has been uh, very important to um, uh, in our um, uh, literature and culture. Yeah, and it's not that long ago that we figured out, in some sense, the way Venus really is. Uh, of course, we still have a lot to learn, but the, the basics of how different it is from Earth and a lot of the science fiction that I grew up reading was written when we still thought that Venus might be an oceanic planet. So a lot of the science fiction stories that were written in the 40s and 50s, a lot of these classic ones by Isaac Asimov and people like that, they still have this oceanic Venus and, you know, that the Earth explorers are, you know, they're in submarines uh, exploring exotic uh, creatures under the water there. Today, uh, there's one spacecraft that's orbiting Venus, and um, it seems like um, it's been a, a planet that's been observed by many different space agencies. Uh, do you remember the one that's there now? Yes. We are fortunate that our colleagues in the Japanese space agency have a spacecraft called Aktsuki. It's, uh, it, it's a word that means dawn in Japanese, which makes sense, given what we were talking about, Venus being the morning star. And... Um, it's, a, it's actually a spacecraft that has a sort of heroic story because it was launched in 2010, made it to Venus just fine in, uh, in, in less than a year, um, and then it was supposed to burn its main engine for 12 minutes and go into orbit. Uh, and sadly, something went wrong with the main engine, and it spun off helplessly around the sun. But amazingly, it spun off helplessly around the sun on a trajectory that was going to bring it back to Venus five years later. So they had a chance to get into orbit, but they didn't have a main engine. But these very clever uh, Japanese engineers figured out if they take these, these little maneuvering thrusters uh, and fire them all in the same direction for 20 minutes, which they were not designed to do, that they might be able to get it into orbit. And, of course, they couldn't practice it because they only have enough fuel to do it once. But it, it worked. And now Akatsuki's in orbit and making all kinds of neat observations of the atmosphere and the clouds and some observations of the surface uh, at these wavelengths where you can peer a little bit through the clouds. And so it's a, it's a wonderful sort of a resurrected mission. You know, NASA's currently got some proposals for Venus in a, in, in a set call, we call the New Frontiers call of uh, four missions. And so we're analyzing those and perhaps, you know, we'll be uh, selecting a Venus mission, which would be uh, pretty spectacular if we we're able to do that. That would be terrific. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, one of these years uh, we will um, NASA will be uh, returning to Venus. There's certainly a lot more uh, left to uh, explore there. Well, what would you do from an exploration point of view? What would be the top science activities that um, uh, we ought to be going after? I mean, Venus is a challenging place to explore. Part of the reason we haven't been there more is that uh, the surface environment is so severe. You can't see the surface from orbit like you can from Mars, at least not in the visible. But there are a few things that would really help us with our uh, understanding the history. One is um, that we've never really got good measurements of the rare gases, what we call the noble gases, and their isotopes. Other things we would love to do are uh, 
orbit again with a uh, a really much more sophisticated radar. Now we can do these. Um, uh, you know, we have these radar interferometers, which, uh, for instance, on Earth, you see these, uh, they do these amazing um, measurements where you can see the San Andreas Fault. You can actually see the motion um, because they're so sensitive. And so if we had something like that on Venus, we could actually see if it's tectonically active, let alone map, map the surface in much more detail. And, and of course, also, um, we would love to uh, really land on Venus. Uh, the Soviets did it a long time ago. The Russians did it um, decades ago. But now, again, with modern instrumentation and armed with the, the sort of more sophisticated questions we have um, now based on what we've learned, we'd love to dig into the dirt and measure the minerals and l really look for clues to the history of that surface and the history of climate and um, some of those big mysteries, what happened to the water on Venus? How long ago did Venus lose its water and what has the climate um, done since then? Unlike the Earth, Venus doesn't have a moon. Why do you think that happened? Our current understanding of why the Earth has its moon, again, has to do with that early impact history, the, uh, the sort of last stages of formation of the Earth that very, uh, we think that a Mars-sized object hit Earth and in just the right way that it spun a, a glowing ring of material into orbit around the Earth, which then coalesced to form the Moon. And that was actually, if you think about it, a very um, somewhat random and very specific event that if that impact hadn't happened or it had a slightly different geometry, Earth might not have a moon or it might have several moons like Mars, you know, so it's so the fact that Earth has its moon, we think now we understand comes down to this slightly chaotic and random event. So it may just be as simple as Venus's final stages of formation uh, happened a little bit differently from Earth's in terms of the sizes and geometries of those last few big crashes that formed Venus. You know, we all get into this business some way or another, you know, and I refer to that as that gravity assist that pulls you in. What's your story in that? Well, I, I'm not one of these people that uh, had to figure out what I was going to do and, and had many false starts. I um, I feel like I was always on a sort of path, um, so I didn't need too many uh, gravity assists. I was sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what, uh, it, it just seemed, uh, partly I was born at the right time. Literally, my earliest memory, my earliest vivid memory is the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Um, and, you know, I was in fourth grade uh, and I was just so captivated. And I think you'll find a lot of uh, space scientists of my generation will say the same thing, that Apollo, like, was a big event for them. But then also, um, when I was young, um, I had some influential um, people in my life and, and mentors actually um, it turns out one of my dad's best friends was Carl Sagan when I was little. They were both Harvard professors. And, you know, this was before he was famous. He was just this cool guy we knew who uh, would lead these public observing nights at the Harvard Observatory and, uh, you know, let us go uh, run the controls at the planetarium. And, you know, so uh, that was certainly an influence. And then um, when I went to college, I had some great mentors. In fact, my my first semester at Brown University, I took a class called Mars, the Moon, and the Earth with Jim Head who is, uh, Jim Head's a little bit of a Pied Piper of planetary geology. He gets a lot of young uh, students excited, and I was one of those. And then I, uh, in college, I got some summer, I got a summer job working for uh, Professor Head, um, analyzing um, some of the new uh, Viking images of Mars, which were just um, a few years old then. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I just was um, pulled in and uh, 
captivated and, uh, you know, never, never lost that excitement. Well, we had a great time talking about Venus, and I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, chit-chat about one of my favorite planets. Well, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure for me. Join us next time as we continue our virtual tour of the solar system. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. Gravity.